Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Good morning. How's it going, Contrast? Uh, my name is Adam, as you heard uh, my wife say that. I think she has to say that. It feels like conflict of interest, especially because her brother's the pastor. I feel like we're, uh, that's a bummer to put shame on our head pastor while he's out of town. Um, but Trey, Trey is out of town right now in Chicago, which is my neck of the woods. So Trey got some ch- a chance to go spend some time with some college friends of his. So that's where he is this weekend. So I get to fill in, uh, which is a huge blessing. Excited to be here. Um, we are going through the book of John as a church right now. We're going through what we are calling the signs. Um, and these are signs that Jesus is uh, using to demonstrate his uh, deity and, and, and his ability to present to us that he is who he says he is, that he is God. And he's using these through um, these signs, wonders, and miracles uh, that we've been going through. So if you've been with us, that's kind of where we're going to continue going. Um, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a really great place. We call this our home church for a reason because it's awesome. Um, that being said, uh, I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap. So if you were with us last week, uh, you know that Trey did a really good job of preaching on the feeding of the 5,000, right? So this is the passage where, uh, you know, Jesus is kind of in the midst of his, the heavy part of his ministry, and there becomes a point in time where all these people come to see him preach. Uh, people get hungry. Uh, Trey, Trey did a really good job of explaining, like, how massive of a situation this was with all these people. Uh, you know, we say 5,000, but it's probably more like 20,000 with women and children. And, and the difficult spot they got in to be able to feed all these people. And Jesus shows up and does this wonderful, cor- courageous, miraculous sign of all of a sudden making enough food for all these people. Uh, and and the, like, the difficult way of making that happen, and, like, it just doesn't make any sense. But yet Jesus shows up and feeds all these people in this crazy way. Um, and it kind of, and Trey left it with the idea that the people were so enthralled, so excited that this man fed them that they decided they kind of wanted to make him their king because they're like, we like people that give us free food, right? And so what happens is, is they, they try to make Jesus you know, into their king. They want to make him his leader. And Jesus being wise and all-knowing because he's God is like, that's a bad idea. That's not why I came right now and for that reason. So Jesus leaves, which is not what they expected and probably not what any normal human would do when everyone's like, hey, let's put you in power. So he leaves, right? So it actually tells us that Jesus kind of tells his disciples, hey, meet me in Capernaum, hop in a boat, go over to Capernaum. Uh, In the meantime, I am going to go up to the mountain and pray, spend some time in solitude, which I'm like, amen, Jesus, I get that. I like me time too. So he goes and he gets some solitude time. um, And so then that's where our story picks up. So, so we have, we have this story where the the disciples, that's what we're picking up tonight or today is the disciples hop in this boat, um, and they have to meet him in Capernaum across what they call the lake. We're talking about the Sea of Galilee. Um, but, but I think it's really important that right now uh, we, we kind of practice our empathy and try to put ourselves in the mindset of these disciples and try to figure out kind of why and what they're feeling. I don't know if you've ever been a part of uh, a big event, like maybe it's a funeral uh, or a wedding, whatever it may be. Sometimes these big events, when you're doing something all day and it's highly emotional, uh, it can be super draining. Especially funerals. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a funeral. Like you knew the person that died and you helped plan the funeral and you're there with all the family. At the end of the day, you're just wiped, both emotionally and physically. It's exhausting. You could say the same thing about weddings, if you're, especially if you're the one getting married. It is exhausting. And by the end of the day, you've got nothing left to give, right? And so I have to imagine that the disciples, after this huge day uh, of helping Jesus do this, I mean, they just helped Jesus pass out the food that he miraculously created. But they were serving. They were walking around. They were helping these people. They were answering questions. They had to have been totally wiped. 
Uh, and so this day comes to a close, and so they're, they're probably just ready to go home. And so they hop in their boat. Obviously, they don't have any form of like fast transportation. Uh, and so they hop in a boat, and they get on this Sea of Galilee situation where they're, they're having to row. It says uh, three to four miles, I believe. And what, what I think is really interesting, we talk about the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Trey talked about the Sea of Galilee a little bit last week, but I did a little more research and just kind of curious about the Sea of Galilee in terms of size and what it would have been like to be on it. Um, my, my best context uh, of lakes, uh, it, my, my wife and I used to live in California. We lived on Lake Tahoe, and like, that's just the lake I've been around the most. And I was curious like, how, how similar in size and what it would be like if you compared the two. So I just Googled comparing like, Tahoe and uh, sea of Galilee, and Google was like pretty rough. It's it literally, it's actually really funny. I don't know why Google does this, but it literally said comparing Lake Tahoe to the Sea of Galilee is like comparing dirt to a rainbow. That's literally what Google said. I was like, man, that's kind of brutal. That's like, seems kind of mean. But so either way, the Sea of Galilee is shallow. Uh, it's not very. It's like seven miles wide, 13 miles long. It's kind of an ugly lake, right? So so they they have to get in this kind of churned up, uh, ugly lake to go to uh, Capernaum. And they're tired. And it's not like they can just zip over. It's going to uh, be a lot of rowing. Um, this boat was probably not that well engineered. So they get in this boat, um, and they are on their way. Um, w- one thing to be said is that I don't know if you guys have ever been out into like an open body of water so, so far out that maybe you cannot see the shore. Uh, it, and it does like weird things to your brain. I don't know what it is, but when you're out on a boat and you can't see the shore, your brain just does like tricks on you. And <coughs> it, can feel, <coughs> excuse me, it can feel a little isolating. And your brain just doesn't like compute it that well. And I have to imagine when they get out there, they're, they're like, we just want to get home, right? They're, they're, they're just trying to make sure that they can get to their, to their place where they're trying to get safely. And then, of course, this storm happens, right? Uh, and, and so we know that if, if we study the Sea of Galilee, that it's pretty common for when these storms occur that these waves can be up to 10 feet tall, which may not feel like a, t- a tall wave, but it is if you're on a small boat uh, and you don't have really that much control over the boat and you're being crashed by these big waves. I imagine that was... Not a fun experience to be in. Uh, there is a, I was curious about this because I, I personally do not love huge open bodies of water. Uh, I think it can be a little freaky. There is a phobia that I'm almost positive my wife has called thessalophobia, which means that you're afraid of water that you can't see the bottom of. And I just imagine like being in, like you, your brain is like, if I go swimming in this water, like a giant sea creature is just going to eat my feet off. Right? That's like a weird, irrational fear that people have of like not wanting to swim in the open ocean, uh, which makes sense in the ocean, but not necessarily in the Sea of Galilee. But either way, um, it puts you in a bad spot. So, so the disciples are getting in the boat, um, and they are rowing, and they're trying to get there, and they, they see what they, what they depict as a ghost. Now, pause here really quick. If you're familiar with Scripture in the, in the Bible, we know that the Gospels is an account of four different experiences of the same event that happens. Right? And so we're going through John, and so for whatever reason, John happens to have the shortest depiction of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, if you look at the other Gospels, there's a lot more, and we're going to get into what the other Gospels say about this event. Uh, but for whatever reason, Luke doesn't even include it. Luke is a doctor and probably just didn't want to deal with it and so just left it out completely. Uh, there, but the other Gospels have different versions of what happened. Um, and that, that's why probably when you read the passage that we're reading out of John, you're like, what about the disciple getting in the water. We'll, we'll get to that. So we're going to pause that for a second, uh, and I'm going to approach a topic that I think every human being in some form or fashion struggles with, uh, and, and that is the topic of control. Now, control is one of those things that some people are like, oh, I don't desire control. I, you know, I, I like to know some things, but like, I'm pretty good at like, going with the flow. Liars. Everyone in some <laughs> form or fashion desires control. That's just being human. 
right? Whether it's in this category or that, it feels good to have control over something for some reason. It just does. It doesn't feel good to be out of control, right? And so it's, it's this thing that, that we as human beings desire uh, in a very, very deep, deep way. To be honest, this week has been probably one of the worst weeks in recent memory. It's just been a really, really challenging week for me. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons that is that right now I'm kind of in uh, limbo with a job. So I'm really, trying, I'm really struggling with my current job. I'm in the process of interviewing. I'm doing like two to three interviews a day. Again, that's super exhausting. Um, I'm balancing being a parent, a, a husband. I'm refinishing our basement. It, it, and I'm preparing for the sermon. This week has just been super, super stressful. Um, and, you know, and dealing with this, and it's funny because I didn't get to pick this passage, traded, and now I'm reading about, like, trust and control and, and people experiencing Jesus come in a way that is unexpected, um, and, and it just really, really opened my eyes to some things. So we're going to pause, and we're going to go into the Old Testament, which I'm a big fan of the Old Testament. Someone earlier this morning heard that we were going into the Old Testament, and they, like, booed me. And I'm like, that's not nice. The Old, the Old Testament is great. Um, so if you will, uh, you can turn your attention to the screen. Uh, if you just want to close your eyes, sit back and listen, that is totally fine as well. So a little background on where we're going to open the Bible uh, in Exodus. So if you're familiar with Exodus, what happens is, is that the Israelites are in slavery, right? And so what happens is Jesus or God sends Moses to free the slaves, and he ends up using these 10 plagues to release the people so that Pharaoh will let them leave. He refuses to do so for a long time, and finally the 10th plague happens, and the 10th plague being that all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians are killed. And finally, Pharaoh is pushed to a breaking point, and he says, fine, get out of here. Remove yourself. I'm done. Leave. Right? And so the Israelites are like, great, we will do so. So that's where we're going to pick up right here. So this is Exodus 14, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites that they must turn and camp before Pi Harayoth. I'm going to butcher these words. I apologize. Between Migdal and the sea. You are to camp by the sea before Baal Zephon, opposite of, opposite of it. Pharaoh will think regarding the Israelites. They are wandering around confused in the land. The desert has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. I will gain honor because of Pharaoh and because of all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So this is what they did. When it was reported to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and the king and his servants said, What in the world have we done? For we have released the people of Israel from serving us. Then he prepared his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 select chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt and officers on all of them. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's a really packed statement. We're not going to dive into that today, but that has a lot of opinions and things that go into that. But we're going to skip over that right now. And he chased after the Israelites. Now the Israelites were going out defiantly. The Egyptians chased after them, and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them camping by the sea beside pi Hariah before Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the desert? Now, I love the sass here, because the Israelites just are using like idioms, and they're like, Moses, have you just run out of gravestones that you decided to take us out here to murder us? And I imagine that, Pharaoh, or that Moses had to have been so done with the Israelites that he was like, yeah, Jethro, that's what we're doing here. We ran out of stones, and now we're coming out here to kill you. And, and he's like, no, the, you know, we're gonna, there's something that's about to happen. 
He says, what in the world have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't it that we told you in Egypt, leave us alone, that we can serve the Egyptians because it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert? Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord that he will provide. For you today, for the Egyptians that you will see today that you will never ever see again. The Lord will fight for you and you can be still. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. And as for you, lift up your staff and extend your hand toward the sea and divide it so that the Israelites may go through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after them, that I may be honored because of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gained my honor because of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The angel of the Lord, who was going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved uh, from before them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian camp and the Israelite camp. It was a dark cloud, and it lit up the night so that one camp did not come near the other the whole night. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, and the Lord drove the sea apart by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into dry land, and the water was divided. So the Israelites went through the middle of the sea on dry ground, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Okay, so you may be saying, what does this have to do anything with, Peter, or with Jesus walking on water? Let me, let me say this. First of all, Egypt, the Israelites are very much out of control in this situation. Right? They, are, they felt like they were freed, and so they were like skipping out of town, and all of a sudden, and they thought they were scot-free, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh is like, hold up, I made a mistake. Those are all my slaves. I want them back. And so he starts charging after them, and they freak out. And they freak out, and they told Moses, and this, this is wild. It blows my mind, the, the messed up thinking behind this. But they told Moses, they were like, we, we told you we wanted to stay slaves. We, we, we would rather be slaves then, then try to follow some God that you think is going to do something that we can't even see what's going to happen. Like, let us stay as slaves. Like, how dare you try to mess things up? We love being slaves. And it's, it's just wild to me. Uh, not to get a little dark, but I think this is important. Um, th- for those of you that know me, uh, know that I am in recovery from addiction from alcohol. And it has been a challenging thing for me. Uh, and if you ever want to talk more about that, I'm very open about it and would love to discuss it with you. But as I reflect on this journey, as I reflect on what it took and what I was going through and still going through in some ways, is that when I was at my darkest of dark and I was in the most difficult season, I was using alcohol as something that was something I could control. A lot of things in my life felt out of control. A lot of things were not going my way, and that was one of the only things that I could control, and I liked the control that it gave me. And so I stayed in that control for a long time because of the control it gave me until I realized from so many people that cared about me that I was not actually in control. I was in slavery. And it took a lot of work and a lot of praying and a lot of realization to realize that the control that I bought into that I thought was going to free me was actually just slavery. And the control was fake. It wasn't real. And I wanted to stay there for a long time because I thought I had control, but yet it was tearing apart my life. It was tearing apart everything. And I found salvation and freedom through Christ from that addiction and got out of slavery. And that's exactly what's happening right now to the Israelites is that they are, for some reason, desiring slavery because they can't see that their control in slavery is actually the opposite of the plan that God has for them. And Moses is giving them a way out. He's saying, look, the slavery that you think is control is actually death. The slavery that you think is allowing you to get a regular meal at night, 
might be good for a, for a short time, good for a short season, but I have freedom for you moving forward. And they can't see it yet. They're confused. They don't know what that means. They see the army coming down that's going to just wipe them out. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, we're, we're, this is going to end horribly. And God's like, all right, here we go. And so he gives you know, Moses this command to split the Red Sea, and then off they go. Right? Obviously, this is a miracle. Obviously, this is, is not normal. But, but I think as we study scripture, we see that God is the God of unnormal. That God is the God of, of breaking chains, that he removes us from slavery if we will release control that we think that we have, even though it's a facade. And so we have this story of, of, of the Israelites being shown what good can come from when we release, when we release our, our stuff. Okay, so let, let me say this, though. All that sounds great, but it's a lot easier said than done. What I mean by that is that release of control is not fun, it's not easy, and it's not like a, a process that you want to start today, right? You've got those control items in your life that you're like, all right, we're going to just like put these in a box, we're going to keep them the way we want them. I know that God is asking me to release them, but I'll wait till that miracle shows up before I release my, my control, right? And so then all of a sudden, we put ourselves in God's position and say, no, 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 I'm in control, I've got the wheel, I, I, I'm going to make the decisions here, I know what's best for me which is a, a, a dangerous, dangerous statement. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to open this up again to the Old Testament. Uh, stick with me here. And we're going to go to the book of Job, spelled Job, which is an unfortunate name. Um, but we are going to go into Job. So a little background text on, uh, of this text is that Job, Job's a really fascinating story. Uh, some people argue that it's an allegory, which means it's a story meant to have meaning. Some people think it actually happened. But it's a really, really fascinating story because we get a depiction of a conversation in heaven between God and Satan, which we don't get really pretty much anywhere else in that context. And, and we have this character, Job, who is a faithful follower of God. He honors God with his life. He's, he's honored God with all his possessions. And he is known to be just a man of God and and. God is bragging to Satan and look, said, look at, look at my man. Like, look at this dude. He's awesome. Look how good he is. And Satan basically says he's only that way because of the good things that he has. He's only, he's only a man of God because of the possessions that he holds. And his life is so easy. Of course he likes God. Of course he likes you. It's just too easy. So, so God says, fine, t- take away his things and we'll see what happens. So he does. So he allow, God allows Satan to remove all the blessings all the easy parts of his life, and, and wipes them out. And it gets so bad that all his children are killed. Uh, it gets so bad that he loses all his physical possessions. He finds himself sitting on the ground using a pot of clay, excuse me, scraping flesh off his body in rubble around him. And in fact, it gets even worse. His friends are like, curse God and die, right? Terrible friends. But like, it gets so bad that he is in this position and rightfully so, he questions God. Not, not questions God's power or authority, but like, why, God, why, why are you allowing these difficult things to happen to me? Like, what are you doing here? I think we've all been there. I think things have gone wrong in our lives where it's easy to be like, hold up, like, I'm doing my best here. Like, I, I'm trying to honor you, and it seems like nothing's going right. Like, what the heck? Like, I think we've all felt that injustice that we feel is injustice of saying, like, why would you allow these awful things to happen. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Every time I read this passage, it just brings me to my knees, partly because I am enamored by creation, so that is part of my personality, but I love the outdoors, and this just brings me to my knees. So we're going to open in Job 38. So this is God's response to Job. So then the Lord answered, Job out of the whirlwind, which is a really freaking cool way to respond. 
Who is this? Who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Get ready for a difficult task like a man. I will que- which is kind of an ouch. I will question you and you will inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you possess understanding. Who set its measurements, if you know, or stretched a measurement line across it? On what were its bases set, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang in chorus, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut up the sea with doors when it burst forth, coming out of the womb? When I made the storm clouds in its garment, and its thick darkness its swaddling band, when I prescribed its limits and set it in place, its bolts and doors, when I said, to here you may come and no farther, here your proud waves will be confined. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or made the dawn know its place, that it might seize the corners of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like cloud, like clay under a seal. Its features are dyed like a garment. Then from the wicked the light is withheld and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you gone to the springs that fill the sea or walked about the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you ever seen the gates of a deepest darkest? Have you considered the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know it all. In what direction does light reside in darkness where it is, is, is its place? That you may take them to, to their borders and perceive the pathways of, to their homes. You know, for you were born before them, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouse of snow or seen the armory of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble for the day of the war and battle? In what direction is lightning dispersed or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who carves out a channel for the heavy rains and a path for the rumble of thunder to cause it to rain on uninhabited lands, a wilderness where there are no human beings, to satisfy a devastated and desolate land and to cause it to sprout with vegetation? Does the rain have a father, or who has fathered the drops of dew? For whose womb does the ice emerge and the frost from the sky who gives birth to it? When the waters become hard like stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen solid, can you tie the bands of Pallades or release the cords of Orion? Those are constellations. Can you lead out the constellations in their seasons or guide the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens, or can you set up their rule over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds so that the floodwaters cover you? Can you send out a lightning bolt and they go? Will they say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the heart of the, or, the, or has imparted understanding to the mind? Who by wisdom can count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of heaven? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clumps of clay of earth stick together, do you hunt, pray for the lioness and satisfy the appetite of the lions? When they crouch in their dens, when they will wait in ambush in the thicket, who prepares prey for the raven when it is young, when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Okay, God lays it on pretty thick here. Because, you know, Job is like, what are you thinking? Like, I, I, like, I, I think I have a better plan. This is, I, why did you take all my stuff? Like, why did you destroy my family? Why did you, well, like, what, what were you thinking? And God's like, hold up. Do you think you know anything? Which is brutal. Right? Don't say that to your spouse, right? But like, you know, God comes at him and says, like, you don't, you don't understand what's at play here. You're, you weren't in the heavens when we had this discussion. He has no idea. And so when I am in my place of despair, when I am frustrated, when I feel like I just don't understand what God is doing, right? Like, feels like I'm being cheated by, by the world, or, or things are just not happening the way I want them to happen, and I question God, I have to remind myself there's a way bigger plan a- a- at hand than I'm capable of seeing. 
And it's super, super powerful. So I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, we're still kind of in the topic of control, but I'm going to take us to the uh, other passage in the Gospels in Matthew. So this is the other depiction that we have of Jesus walking on the water. So we're coming back to this. So in Matthew 14, this is where you've probably heard more of the, the uh, this is more of a more famous version of it. But in Matthew 14, 26, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to their other side while he dispersed the crowds. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already heading far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because of the wind was against it. As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the, on the water, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And he cried out with, and cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. This is where we deviate. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, order me to come out to you on the water. So he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind, he became afraid and started to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus cried out, or reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you have little faith, why do you doubt? When, uh, then, when they went up to the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Okay, so we have, we have this situation where, like I said, they're exhausted. They're in the boat. They're, they're sailing and rowing, and they're just not in their right mind, and they see something that looks like a ghost, and they're like, It's a ghost! And Jesus is like, Calm down, it's me. And, and what, what's funny is, like, if you... If you think about the chronological uh, sequence of events here, Jesus was spending time alone on the mountain, uh, and then he knows that he has to meet them in, in Capernaum. And because he's God, sometimes I almost feel like he forgets that he is like, not them. And so he's like, i got to go to Capernaum. And so he just starts walking to Capernaum. I almost think he like, forgot he was walking on water. Right? He's just like, doing his thing, and then he's like, they're like, it's a ghost. He's like, oh, shoot, that's right, people don't do this. Right? And, and, and so he's like, don't worry, it's me. And so Peter's like, okay, if, 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 if you're who you say you are, and we, and we don't know what Peter's going through. I imagine that being a disciple is really difficult. I imagine he had his own woes, his own challenges. Uh, he gave up a lot to follow Jesus, and he's probably super frustrated. He's like, all right, Jesus, if it's you, then let me walk to you. A test, right? And I, I, I do that, to be honest. Like, sometimes I'll be like, all right, God, you, you, you make these promises. You say these things, but I don't feel it right now. Like, I, I don't really perceive you doing the things that you're saying you're doing because I feel alone, and I, I'm not seeing your miracles. And Peter's like, prove it. Like, let me walk out to you. So he does. And so as, as Peter steps out, he starts, you know, walking on the water. I bet the disciples were like, that's a bad idea. Don't do that because uh, it's not normal. And so Peter starts walking, and all of a sudden, when he steps out into the boat and he's walking on the water, he's walking towards Jesus, he probably started realizing his surroundings all of a sudden. And I imagine he felt very out of control as he's standing on water, as the seas are raging around him. And all of a sudden, he becomes very aware of his flesh, very aware of his uncontrolled circumstance he's in. And what happens when he gets afraid of his circumstances and feels out of control? He feels doubt. And he starts to sink. Right? And so we have this depiction of him sinking. And, and he freaks out, and Jesus reaches down and grabs him. You know, I suppose Jesus could have let him sink and been like, you're, you know, lost another good one. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus grabs him and, you know, pulls him up. And he says, like, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And it must have been kind of a heartbreaking question for Peter to receive from Jesus. In that moment, staring face to face with Jesus, when he just, that same day, we're talking the same day, just fed the 5,000. 
just saw him just then walking on water, just then literally stepped onto the water and walked on it himself. And imagine the frustration Jesus is like, are you joking me? Like, look around. Like, yeah, there's raging seas. Like, yeah, we're, you, you have a rickety old boat. Like, yeah, like things aren't going great for you right now. But look at what I can do. You know, rem- rem- remember what I've done. And then Peter and Jesus get back in the boat. And then immediately the, the storm sees, and he commands the seas and the winds and the waves and the storm, and they're gone. And man, sometimes I just like, I'm, I'm jealous for the disciples because I, I, w- I would love to experience that. And I find myself feeling jealous. And as soon as I'm honest with myself, I've seen that in my life. Not particularly walking on water, not yet at least, but I've seen God calm the storms in my life. I've seen him when I feel like I'm out of control, nothing makes any sense, and I just feel like I'm, I'm sinking. Like, this is it for me. Sayonara. And then Jesus steps in and saves me. Not because of necessarily my faith, but because of his graciousness and his goodness. Right? Peter didn't earn anything. God was gracious to Peter in that moment. All right. Um, well, ki- kids have kind of a funny way of making you feel certain things. I don't know if you guys have kids but, or have been around kids, but kids, kids don't really have a filter, uh, and they will say precisely what's on their mind. Uh, an example of this was uh, a couple days ago, uh, I was sitting on the couch. My wife has been really sick for a while, uh, like all kinds of really weird small calamities like strep throat and things like that. And so I've been... Uh, riding the couch because I don't want to get strep throat. So like I've been sleeping on the couch here and there over the last couple of weeks and Milo, my oldest, has been aware of this. And so the other night I was sitting on the couch working on something and he like joyfully hopped onto the couch. Uh, he looks at me and he slaps my belly and says, where are you sleeping tonight, big fella? <laughs> I was like, <sighs> it's like, dang, that's, that's kind of hurtful. Uh, sheesh, you know, and, and it's funny because like he didn't mean anything by it, but like he, he just is like saying these things. <laughs> Um, and the other day, like, I was feeling stressed, and, and I, I was just holding him, and I, like, picked him up, and he grabbed my arm, and he was like, Dad, you have huge biceps. And I was like, thanks, buddy. I'm like, I'm 160 pounds soaking wet. I do not have big biceps. But to his, in, his, in his context, like, it's so big to him. It's so not normal to him, because his arms are, like, this big. Right in the bicep, right? You know, it's like he's not used to the strength that his dad has because it's just foreign to him. And I, I felt very convicted by this because I feel like sometimes my mindset is so small when I think of what I control, what, what God's capable of doing. And the irony of the situation is that Jesus walking on the water, in the grand scheme of who God is, is actually quite unimpressive compared to what God can do. We as humans, we read this story and we see Jesus walking on the water and we're like, dang, that's cool. Like, that's so amazing how he could walk on water. What a cool trick. But in the grand scheme of what God is capable of doing, that's actually not that exciting. And I think God sees it that way. I think Jesus sees that way. I think Jesus was walking in the water and they were like, whoa. And he's like, what? You know, like it's, it's, it's not that crazy when we allow God to be who God is and see what he's capable of doing. When you talk about him speaking the stars into motion, right? All right. Uh, one thing that we have to be able to do is acknowledge that we do not have control, which is a challenging thing to do, uh, and it takes an exerted effort to say, okay, I'm in this place of thinking I'm in control, and I'm going to let go. We play this dangerous game as human beings of wanting control and saying, I've got control, and saying, hey, God, give me space, I've I've got this, to then flip-flopping and then saying, hold up, I lost it, God, you take the reins. Like, I can't do this, 
it was always you. Just kidding. Like, you take it. And then we, as soon as we get our control back, we're like, never mind, God. I got this. And then it goes crazy again, and it goes back and forth, back and forth. And I, and I, I find myself in that cycle on a regular basis of trying to figure out like, what, what I can control or what I want to let God control. And that's a dangerous game that we play. And I, I feel convicted, even this week, as it's been challenging and uh, very up and down and just difficult to deal with, of like, what am I willing to let God take control of that I think I need control of? You know, like, I, I walk down these fears. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the Enneagram. It's like a personality test. A lot of people in our church are really into it. I, I think it's great, but sometimes I think it's annoying, just being honest. Um, in, this, in this personality test, I'm a six, which is like, it's called the loyalist. It, the loyalist is the, the positive side. The negative side is that I trust nothing and no one and think everything is going to go horribly. Um, so, like, I'm a worst-case scenario type person. Like, my brain just always leaps to, like, how badly this is going to end for me. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Like, I watch my children's lives flash before my eyes, like, seven times a day. Like, you know what I mean? It's just I constantly think about all these things that could go possibly wrong. And I think the mindset shift I have to think about is how could things go right with God? What is God waiting to do in my life with my lack of control that he is waiting to do a miracle in? What, what is he just like, is waiting for me, just like the Israelites just had to leave Egypt and he was waiting to split the Red Sea? What if God is waiting to do something that you can't even fathom, that, that you, you would never guess that your brain wouldn't conceive of, that God is waiting to do in your life if you release the control on things that do not matter in the grand scheme? Okay, last but not least, one of the things that I, I've learned this habit uh, in, in recovery especially, which is a really, really great uh, way of growing, I would recommend the 12 steps to anybody, to be honest. Um, it is super beneficial. But one of the things that I've learned is to tell myself truths. So when I'm in a dark spot, when I don't feel like I'm in control, when I'm feeling super discouraged, uh, one of the things that I've learned to do is tell myself truths that God has promised me to do. And what that can do, what that has the power to do is allow me to like step back, get scope, and remember what God has done. Because when those storms are raging, if Peter and the disciples, when the storm was getting really, really bad, and they knew what Jesus was doing, they knew that Jesus was God, they knew that Jesus had a plan for while he was there on earth, they were like, hold up, there's no way that it ends like this. This is not how the story ends. He didn't bring us this far as his disciples for us to just get in a boat and sink, right? But that perspective can be hard to have in the moment. So, so one thing I like to do is, is to remind myself, maybe some of you guys do this, but some, some of the promises that I have to remind myself is that God has promised me eternal life. What that means is that life is short. We are not going to be young and spry forever. We are spring chickens now, but we will not always be spring chickens, right? And so things are going to go bad, and we will get old, and we will die, but we are promised more than this life on earth. That means that when we die, if we turn to Jesus, we have salvation in him. And that's the next promise, that we do have salvation. That means that we are eternal beings that God created a spirit and a soul inside our bodies that we are to be with him in union if we put our faith and trust in him. Another really heavy hitter is peace. Jesus is the prince of peace and Jesus promises peace. Now my life can feel extremely unpeaceful sometimes. Chaotic, little children, jobs, fixing a basement that's being a challenge, like all these things can be extremely unpeaceful. And if I let myself live in the unpeace, I'm not really living out the calling that Jesus has on my life to turn to him for peace. Because otherwise I'm turning to anything but him for peace, which always ends poorly. Another promise is that he promises that he will fill us with his love. Now this is one of my favorites. 
that, that it's really easy to be snarky. It's really easy to be frustrated with people. It's really easy to be rude, especially when we get our order wrong at the restaurant or whatever. Like, there's a million reasons why we're like, ah, you know? And it's, it's easy to get stuck in that. But the Lord promises us his peace. Whether I'm in a fight with my wife, whether I'm in a fight with my boss, my peace does not come from checking boxes. My peace comes from the Lord. And I have to live that. I, I have to know that. And unless I live that and know that, I will not find peace. You see it. You see people looking for peace in every other way. It's common, right? And the promise is that we get our peace, which is hard to find, from Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, another promise that I like to turn to is that he is filled with compassion. Now, I need compassion because I screw up a lot. Like, I am super grateful for God's compassion on me because without his compassion, we'd be in a bad spot. And that compassion is, it, it's, it, it just spreads. It's contagious, right? And so his compassion on me allows me to have compassion on, on those around me. I mean, there have been so many times where, like, my children will accidentally kick me where they shouldn't kick me or poke me in the eyeballs, and it just fills me with rage. And you're like, they're just four, Right? But, but we can magnify that in other ways in our life where we feel instant rage about something and, and we forget that we've been shown compassion and that when we believe in the promises of who God is, that he's going to fill us with compassion, fill us with love, fill us with, fill us with peace, the storms, the rocky boat that we're in seems to calm down a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm going to uh, invite the band up as we close, uh, but I really want you guys to to reflect on the questions that we have up, up top. One of the things that I really want you guys to, to reflect on this, this morning is you, you may be thinking, I don't feel like I have any control anyways. What is he talking about? Control sounds great. Never had that. I, I think that might not be true. I, I think that there are things that we're unwilling to let God have control of. And I think there are places where we just don't trust God. Like I, I, like I said, I don't think I would have been Peter when I saw Jesus, who was immediately like, cool, let me try too. I think that's convicting to me. Like, I read Peter's story, and I think, man, I wish I would have been the person who jumped out of the boat and chased after Jesus without a second thought. That's convicting to me. I, I think about when, and it's probably going to happen this week, when the storms come back, when, when the storms rage, and I feel out of control, am I willing to stop gripping that steering wheel so tight and, and release it? and let Jesus take the wheel. I didn't do that one on purpose. Um, but I'm just saying, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and let ourselves reflect on what is control in our lives and how it dictates who we are, our walk with Christ, and how it dictates how we treat other people and, and the trust that we have in him. Do we trust God that he can calm the storm? Do we trust God that he can walk on water? Do we trust God that if we get free from our slavery, that he is going to be there to receive us with a miracle? That's a hard thing to trust in. That's a really hard thing to believe in. Miracles are called miracles for a reason because they're not normal. Do I actually believe and trust that if I am released from my slavery, that there is something on the other end that God has promised me? We're going to go into a reflection time. So what that means is that you guys can reflect on the questions we have up top. What we're also going to do is we're going to have communion. Uh, so that is gluten-free, which I think is hilarious, but we have gluten-free communion. Um, and uh, we also have what we call the uh, giving box or the bringing box. What that means is that, uh, you know, we bring what the Lord has already given us back to the Lord uh, in, in honoring him. And with that being said, I'm going to close this in prayer.
Dear Jesus, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for this space. Thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the blessing it is to be able to serve you and, and to believe in something bigger than something the world has to offer, that, that we know that there are miracles on the other side of, of our storms. I just pray that you would give us courage to be able to believe that, to trust that, and to release the control we have in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.